All right. Anyways, we're going to take a look at um, at what what starts a whole process. There is what starts a whole process uh, that leads to this very long story that we've looked at from other perspectives in the past, which is the the marriage between Yitzhak and Rivka. Uh, we've looked at uh, the difference between uh, the way that Yitzhak tell the way that the Eved tells the story and the way that the story is presented in the narrative. Uh, we've looked at why the Evans name isn't there and his identification with Eliezer and why that might be, the Midrashic identification. Um, <clears throat> but And we've looked at, notably, the point of view issue of who he is in the eyes of everybody else and in the eyes of Rivka and what possible deception may have gone on there. But we never looked at this problem, which is the, the issue, the statement of Abraham that starts the whole ball rolling. And this entire mission starts because Abraham does not want Yitzchak to marry. Well, let's see who it is he doesn't want him to marry. All right, so we'll start with this. We have Abraham Zakein Babayamim, which, by the way, important to note means is a phrase that's used several times. We find it with David, we find it with Yeshua. Abraham Zakein Babayamim means he's old and his days are coming, means he's about to die, or at least he thinks he's about to die. All right, it turns out that he's certainly got at least 35 more years to go, uh, maybe 36, could be, but he's not close to dying, but he thinks he is. That's what dr drives this. In the meantime, he's got a golden retirement. So Avram turns to his Eved, who is the elder in his house. Now, Zakan here is not a chronological statement. It means he is the one who's in charge of all of the stuff in the house. So you could call him a CFO, but that's a little difficult because he's an Evid. And as long as he's an has a status of an Evid, which is a very clear status, it's not just a vocation. Um, it means that Avram has in his household Avadim, and there's one Evid who's put in charge of things, not very different than Yosef in Potiphar's house. What does he say to him? And just a short moment about this odd phrase, where he says, put your hand under my thigh, and then Vashbiachan, I'm going to make you take an oath. What's that about? And by the way, we see it in Pasuk Ted at the end of this vignette when he puts his hands or his hand under Avram's thigh and makes this oath, which means putting the hand under the thigh is a critical piece of this puzzle about what's going on. So just a, a word about that. Uh, we have the famous Midrash, uh, Rashi quotes it. Uh, that uh, he had him put his hand under the thigh because when you take a shvur, you want to hold on to something that has kedusha, typically a sefer Torah, it's filling. And since there were no mitzvot yet, and the only mitzvot was brit milah, take it from there. Uh, however, there may be something else going on here, and that is has to do with the fact that Avraham is zaken babayamim, because this exact request happens later on in Breshit, at the very end of Breshit. Uh, which is when uh, when um, Yaakov says to Yosef, and take an oath that you won't bury me here, you'll bury me back in Hebron. So these two are very similar. And what is their similarity? Is that they are both fathers who are, in, who are anticipating death soon, and they have a post-mortem request of their person who's in charge to do something on their behalf that they're afraid won't get taken, taken care of because they'll be gone. 
it's clear that Avraham can't handle this job himself, as we'll see, it's a big job because he's too old. All right, and so what is the symbolism of putting your hand under the thigh? So we actually have this from other Near Eastern documents. This was a method of taking an oath that was sort of similar to, I'm sure you've all done this before, a trust fall. You know, we've done this in camp and, and in, in bonding exercises for work, or a gibushon, as we call it, is you stand there and fall backwards and somebody catches you. And it's a total trust thing. But it's a similar thing. When you're putting your hands under somebody's thigh, the symbolism is that they're, they're sitting on you. And the idea is that they are fully dependent on you, and it heightens the severity of the oath that's taken that this is an oath that the person administering it will not be around to make sure it gets gets uh, fulfilled, and therefore you symbolize it by holding them. And the same thing that Yosef puts his hands under uh, his hands under Yaakov's thigh to indicate you can totally rely on me that I'll bury you when you're not around to see to it anymore. I'll bury you back in Hebron. The same thing here. Abraham is concerned he won't be around for Yitzchak's wedding. He wants to make sure that it happens with the right girl. Okay. Vashbiacha. So I'm gonna in, in, I'm going to administer an oath to you, meaning I'm gonna make you take I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you take an oath. Right? So Avram perhaps has to explicate who God is to this Evid. We don't know who this Evid is, and we don't know what his um, understanding of theology is, but he's clearly invoking God. Asher lo tikach isha livni, you may not take a wife for my son. So the sense is he's gonna be. The sort of the executor of the estate and part of his charge will be to find a wife for Yitzchak. So do not find a wife for Yitzchak. And that's the question in the Shir. Why not? What's wrong with Benot HaKnani? But he adds another descriptor here, which is Asher Anochi Yoshev Bikirbo, that I dwell in their midst, in their midst. And that's an important phrase because, as we all know, this is the famous story where Yafasi Chatan Shalavdebateavot. This is the famous story where the entire story gets repeated um, uh, later on when the Eved comes into the house and they give him food. And they said, I'm not going to eat anything until I tell my story. He says the story. And Sarah had a child in his old age and he gave everything to that child and da, 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 and he made me take an oath. Now, in the wording of the oath, later on, he says the following, So my master made me take an oath saying, Now I'm going to keep them both on the screen. So far, same words, Which is different. And some of the Rishonim identify, note that difference, and say that what the Evid was trying to do was to convince the family that Avraham was really interested in the people from his old country, and he was didn't want to have somebody from the country he was in. Okay, and therefore be'art so. But that's not what Avraham said, and the text is quite clear that Avraham said, Asher in his midst, which you could say is another way of saying be'art so, but it's not. Okay, so we have to see what that's about. But I, I want to kind of focus our, our first bit of attention here on what is wrong with Kanani girls? Why doesn't Avram want Yitzchak to marry a Kanani girl? So there are three broad approaches taken by the Rishonim. Uh, when I say broad, because each one is nuanced, but three broad approaches taken by the Rishonim as to what's wrong with Kanani girls. Um, one of them is well known. It happens to be a minority, meaning it's not the mainstream approach, 
which is that the Canaanim behave in disgusting manners. They're they're involved in fetishism, they're pagans, they're unethical, they're right, whatever it is, they're bad people. And then you have different nuskot of what they're bad people. That's one version. There is another version, which is um, that they are cursed. And that goes back to Noah, which means it's not necessarily about their behavior, but about their status. They're cursed, and our job is to be blessed. Cursed and blessed don't mix. There's yet a third approach that I'm going to hold off for a minute, and I'll show it to you because we'll take a look at all the approaches. But I want to show you something curious that happens in the Midrash. The Midrash Rabbah here, Rashid Rabbah, has one comment on the Benot HaKanani. It does not make say any of those things that we just said, but rather, he's hero al Benot Aner Eshkol Umamre. What was Abraham warning the slave not to do? Don't let Yitzchak marry the daughters of Aner Eshkol and Mamre. Who are Aner Eshkol and Mamre? They are Abraham's neighbors who are his treaty partners who went to war with him against the kings. And he mentions that in his negotiations with Melech's Dome, that they get their portion of the spoils. Right? So Aner Eshkol and Mamre are Abraham's circle of friends. Now, what's the Midrash trying to say here? So Mirkin in his, in his commentary on the Midrash states that Afilu, he adds in the word Afilu, meaning you can't marry any Kanani, even the ones who you're, who you're friends with. But I, I, don't, I don't think that addition is necessarily in place. And you're going to see this Midrash come up again. Now, we're, we're going to first take a look at a few other incidents in Breshit, because it can't really happen after Breshit. We talk about the issue of marrying Kanani girls. It can't happen afterwards because first we obliterate them, and then all that's left is Shimshon marrying a Plishti, and etc. And then, then the Shlomo, but then that's not Kanaanim anymore. All right, so now when we get to the uh, the point where Esau gets married, so he marries two girls that are Chitiot, which means they are perhaps depending how you read Kanani, is Kanani the name of a tribe or a broad generic name for all these tribes, they may be Kananiot. Now, why did Asaph marry them? Is Asaph trying to form a, some sort of a financial or trade connection with the Chitim or th these cute girls? Why does he take them? We don't know. But we know that Vatiana Marat Urachli Yitzchak Yitzchak and Rivka don't like them. And why don't they like them? We're not told. So now when we roll to the end of that particular story, we see the following. I can't stand these daughters-in-law of mine. Now look very carefully at what Rivka says. You have to remember that this is a smokescreen. Because what Rivka is really trying to do is to get Yitzchak to voluntarily let Yaakov leave home and go to Lavan, and the excuse that she gives is to complain about the daughters-in-law, and she says, if Yaakov marries someone like that, I'll put my head in the oven. Now, what is she, look at the word she's saying. Is she saying, if Yaakov marries a Kanani girl, I'm, I, my life is not worth living? Or is she saying, if Yaakov takes wives like these two losers, then I have no reason to live. Which means that Benota Aretz, who perhaps are willing to marry these outsiders, these Ivrim, maybe are losers. Maybe. 
And if the other ones who are make themselves available, I don't want. Could be. Now notice what happens here. Yitzchak calls Yaakov, what's his first command to him? So his read or his his what he does with the, 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 the transformation that he makes from Rivka's words is to move from don't marry anybody like your sisters-in-law who walk around with big L's on their head because they're losers. Rather, he turns it into don't marry Benot Canaan. Rather, kum lech paden aram beta now, where does Yitzchak get this idea from? Because, by the way, there's a big world out there somewhere between Canaan and Haran. So the simplest read of it is that Yitzchak says, okay, I agree with Rivka that the local girls didn't work out very well. And so as long as we're going to marry from far from outside, he should do what I did. I went to Haran. I didn't go. I the slave went for me. But I married somebody from Haran. So go back and get another wife from Haran. So there's nothing inherent in these psukim that says that these girls in Canaan are no good, but rather the daughters-in-law are no good, and perhaps any girls who would be willing to marry into these outsiders' tribe are no good. Because we have to remember that it's always a funny thing about, uh, about intermarriage. You know, we go, oh, how can I think about a Jewish kid marrying a non-Jewish girl? So we find out that the non-Jewish family is not so happy either. There's, there's the other side. We have to think. Like, How do you think an upstanding Chiti family is going to think about their daughter getting married to this outsider as opposed to one of, our, one of us? Not so clear. In any case, he sends him off to Lavan. Now, notice what happens in the Midrash again. When the Midrash clearly is borrowed from the first place, but the Midrash Rabbah on this Pasuk, when Yitzchak tells Yaakov not to marry local girls, which is odd because we haven't heard of it in our Eshkol Mamre in Yitzchak's lifetime. But nonetheless, now, so with the Midrash here, if if we're to read it on this Pasuk, seems to mean is that he warned him against marrying any of the local girls, any of the ones who are part of the sort of extended tribe or sort of our friends, maybe. And then Mirkan again says the same thing here. Afilu, you know, even the ones we're close with. But again, I don't think that's necessary. Okay, there's two more instances where this shows up in Breshit. In uh, Yehuda, Yehuda leaves his brothers after the Mechirat Yosef, or before, unclear when it happened. Or I say they're all bogged there. But at some point, Yehuda moves on his own. He moves to Timna, which, by the way, curiously, is going to later be smack in the middle of Nachalat Yehuda. There's a lot there. So he becomes friends with a man from Adulam, later famous in David's flight. And the guy's name is Chira. And I put on the spot, Rashi says, what's Kanani? Kanani doesn't mean a Canaanite. It means a merchant. Ushmo Shua. This, the, this guy, his name is Shua, and he's got a daughter, and Yehuda likes her. He takes her as a wife, and he has relations with her. Okay. Now, interesting is that that's how Rashi, what Rashi does with Canaan, because Rashi's bothered. How could it be that Yehuda would marry a Canaanite girl, based on what we've seen so far? But Unklos doesn't do that. Unklos says, and Unklos is comfortable shifting things when they needed. 
Bar, sorry, this is this is Targum Neofiti, which is even more more likely to uh, to adopt the midrashic stance. He sees a girl who's the daughter of a Kanani guy named Shua, and he marries her. And this is now, Uncle's for sure said, but the, I, I think actually Uncle's may say Tigra here. But this is a midrash that's given to, to uh, how do you call it, to, to uh, midrashic inclusions. Now, what's interesting is the midrash Rabbah here actually takes a pasuk in, in Perak Bet of Malachi. Bagda Yehuda Vigam Chilel Kodesh Hashem, and I saw the parts of the pasuk I made big, and reads it as follows in introducing the story of Yehuda and his wife. Amar lekafarta Yehuda, shakarta Yehuda, toivana stab Yisrael. You've done a terrible thing. Ki Chilel Yehuda nestach chulin naseita chulin Yehuda. You made yourself chulin, right? Which is when you go and marry this Kanani girl. Evidently, that's what the midrash is reading. Which means this Kanani girl is not. The daughter of a merchant, she's a Kanani girl. And this Midrash is taking the position that Yehuda, you've defiled yourself by marrying a Kanani girl. And the whole story, of course, ends terribly. Er dies, Onan dies, Yehuda ends having relationship with relations with his daughter-in-law. But of course, from there comes Mashiach. So we're all good. Now, there's one other place where where Kanan shows up in this context, and that's in the genealogical record of the family. It comes down to Mitzrayim. You know, the list of 70, 69, 66, 70, and of course, the 275. Uvnei Shimon. We got Bnei Ruven, now Bnei Shimon. Who are Bnei Shimon? Yimuel, Yamin, Vohar, Vichim, Tzohar, Vishaul, Ben Hakna'anit. Which means that Shimon has married or had relations with a Kanani girl, and there's they have a kid named Shaul. What are we going to do with that? So watch where the Targum that we're, we call it Pseudo-Jonathan, Targum Yuchas Leonatan, it's a very late Mea Targum, reads as follows, Uvnoi de Shimon, the sons of Shimon, Shaul, what should I do with Shaul, who's Zimri, you know who Zimri is? Zimri is the member of Shevet Shimon, a couple hundred years down the line, who sins at Balpoor. He behaved like he did Kanani behavior. So now, what's Shaul ben Akranit? Shaul is not Shaul. Shaul is Zimri. And Kanani is not the son of a Kanani girl, but rather somebody who behaves like a Kanani later on in Shittim. Okay? What does Rashi do with ben Akranit? Because here's the problem. Either you say that because nobody's willing to say Kna'anit is a merchant woman. So either it means something different, and it's not really a woman who's a Kna'ani, or Shimon did something wrong and married a Kna'ani girl, or um, uh, maybe marrying a Kna'ani girl is not so bad. You have to see. What does Rashi say about uh, Kna'anit? Ben Dinahaya. So what happened? Shimon's sister, Dina, who by the way is a full sister, remember that? Achot Mina'im also, was raped or had relations with a Kanani, that's Shechem, and therefore she's called Kananit now. And Shimon had relations with her and gave birth to Shaul. We certainly have some problems with this. Brother, sister? Okay. Now, Ben Kananit, watch what Ibn Ezra says. La'ed ki nishayah shvatim ayu aramiyot umtsriyot vadomiyot umidaniyot. In other words, the Ibn Ezra says, 
the very fact that one kid out of the 50 plus who are mentioned here in the list is identified as Ben Akani proves to you that everybody else didn't marry Kani women. And even Shimon himself only uh, married a, uh, a Kani girl or had relations with a Kani girl after he had other kids. Right? The uh, the Radak says the same thing. They all observed Avram's admitted versions to uh, to to the slave, and they did not marry Kani girls, and he is the one who did. Shimon. Shimon gets um, uh, scraped over the coals on this. All right? However, there are other takes on this. There are other takes not necessarily on Shoban Akranit, though there are, but more on the whole problem with Kanani girls, which is what we're focusing on. So to summarize until now, and then we're going to see. We've seen essentially four places where the issue of a Kanani woman comes up. We see it when Avram administers the oath and the slave re repeats it. Um, we see it in the story of Rivka and Yitzchak and Rivka's re uh, their re reaction to Esav's wives and what Rivka says. We've seen it in the case of Yehuda. And by the way, in all three cases, it is not abundantly clear what the problem is. Meaning, we don't know why Avraham says, don't marry a Kanani girl. Don't take Kanani wife. We don't know that Rivka and Yitzchak are upset because they're Kananiyot, but maybe because of their own behavior, and maybe the other girls were available. And we don't know that Yudah did anything wrong. Uh, it's only when we get to Shobhan Akranit that we have a little bit of a problem. But when we look back now to what the issue was with marrying Kanani girls, like, take a look. The Bechor Shor gives a third approach. Remember I told you the two... The three main three approaches are one, that the Kanani behave badly, two, and that's sort of the Rifka Yitzchak thing, two, that the Kanani are cursed, right? And we're going to see that right now in the Radak. And then there's a third approach. The third approach you can see here in the word in the Bechor Shor. He says the following Normally, when people move into a country, they dafka want to marry local girls. Why? Because by marrying locally, you can inherit land locally. And you would say that, by the way, in the modern era, when somebody immigrates, part, the, the, the second or third generation wants to marry other people who are local because that integrates them into the culture. But, and, uh, but he says, um, uh, and that, by the way, is a big piece of the importance of Paraklamid Vav, which people generally skip over. It's that last chapter in Vayishlach with all the names of Esau's kids, to which most people say, who cares, is that Why did Esau marry a third wife, Olivama, who was Mibnotachori? Because that got him an in to inherit Harseir. Meaning, Avram is saying to his slave, I don't need such a thing. Why? This is the third approach. There's nothing wrong with Kanani women. They're fine. And they're not cursed. But I don't want Yitzhak to marry her because if Yitzhak marries her, then how is he going to get land? How is he going to eventually become a lord of the land? Through marriage. And that, in a sense, diminishes, not in a sense, it absolutely diminishes from the gift of the land that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave. Now you see in the Radak the second direction, Kizara Kran Arur, Zaro Baruch, or Zari Baruch, right? 
And then you see the first approach in the Tava Kabbalah. He's not the first one to say it. He's, of course, 19th century. But he says, There are terrible behaviors. He talks about the, the, the impact of parents on kids and their behavior and Midot, etc. But you see, for instance, Shadal takes the same approach that the Bechor Shor took. He takes the same take, but he, he modifies it. He adds to it. He says, think about this. If Yitzchak marries a Kanani girl, then eventually when we return to the land, we can't dispossess the Kanani because they're family. So again, the issue is not who the Kanani are in their behavior, but just the problem is the Kanani are locals and therefore we can't marry to them, marry them. The whole motion takes the same approach that Ibn Ezra took, that the Radak took, which is that Noah cursed Canaan, and he cursed, you can't be um, uh, be, be connected. All right? So that's um, one instructive note that Ibn Ezra puts here, which is, zota parasha. And he's referring now to Esav and his wives. He said, well, who cares who Esav married? She he was written, so we should be careful not to marry Khan. In other words, we read, Asa married Khani girls, and his parents didn't like them, and that created also disharmony in the family. That should be, kind of warn us not to marry Khani girls. All right. I want to um, point out one little fly in this ointment, which is in a Midrash, but I cannot find the original Midrash, but it shows up in the Alkut Shimoni, which is a later collection of Midrashim, late medieval co collection. In the context of Yaakov's reaction to the news that Yosef was dead, which was, I guess we call it fake news, but I haven't heard that in a couple of years. But uh, his reaction was, of course, to mourn, and his family tried to console him, and he refused to be consoled. There's a strange phrase in there that we've talked about in a different context, which is, all of his sons and daughters got up to, to console him, and he couldn't be consoled. Who are his daughters? What daughters? We know of Dina. So in the past, I've proposed the argument that Yaakov actually had more daughters and had more granddaughters than the list says, and why they're on the list, and that's the Nitziv, and, that's, um, and, uh, and, and others who make that suggestion in different ways uh, on the list that's in Shadal, also on the list that's in Memvav, that the statistic uh, probability of having 70, 69 in your bloodline, of whom only two are female, is really highly, highly unlikely. In any case, and there are arguments for why their names aren't there. But take a look at this Midrash. In other words, he's saying that the the Shvatim uh, all had sisters, and they married their sisters. Doesn't say necessarily the twins thing. They married their sisters. Uh, by the way, it could have been half sisters, meaning it could be that Ruvain marries somebody who's a daughter of Zilpah or whatever. And um, and they married them. And that's why it says his sons and his daughters, because there's there's a bunch of daughters. But around the point he's making is there's a lot more girls around the house than you think. Meaning, who are these daughters? These are Kananiot. Now, does that mean Avad? Like shvachot, or does it mean that that's who the brothers marry, right? So um, that it leaves that as an opening. 
But I want to make a different suggestion here to understand what Avraham's issue was and build it off of the Bechor Shor's direction and look specifically at this difference between Bekirbo and and Be'artso. What is Avraham's mission? Let's look Begadol. What's Avraham's job? Avraham's job is to present a revolutionary approach to understanding God, man, and the universe. Everything. It's huge. And Avram cannot do it in familiar territory. And however you want to interpret what Lech Lecha Me'artzacha is about, a piece of that puzzle is you've got to go somewhere new. And he goes somewhere, and critically, he comes to a place that's populated by others. He is the other. He is a nomad wandering through as a different person who is separate. And the success of his mission, to some extent, depends on his ability to ingratiate himself, and I mean that in the most laudatory way, with the locals. And he does. He makes Britot with Aner and Mamre, and he has meetings with Malfkit Zedek. He becomes a local military hero. And what do the people say to him in this week's Parsha when he comes to buy the, the Kever? Yeah, you're a princely man, a godly man. They all look up to him. But it also depends on him always being an other. He always has to be an outsider. He has to maintain a position of being outside. And that's why he says to the slave, Meaning, Yitzchak cannot marry one of the local girls. These are the people I live with. And that's the Midrash. The Midrash says it explicitly. The people that I'm friends with, the people I'm treaty partners with. Yitzchak cannot marry with them. Why? What's wrong? Just think about it. Calls, man, that you are an outsider. You have a different message. Your distinct message stands there. The people who don't like the message hate you, and the people who take to the message will become your followers, as long as you're an outsider. When Jews first came to Los Angeles, they were about as welcome here as they were as anywhere else. Not very. They were welcomed officially. But the big country club that was built in L.A. was restricted, and Jews couldn't go in. You know what Jews did? They started their own country club. And in those days, as much as people might not have been that observant and might not that have been dedicated and certainly weren't spending a lot of time learning, they stayed Jewish. And they stayed Jewish mainly because they didn't have a choice. And they also stayed Jewish because the only person they could marry was Jewish. And the reality was they maintained the Jewish identity. Today, they can go anywhere. They can be involved with anything. And the Jewish identification is severely down, and the rate of intermarriage here is about 70%. That means of every 10 weddings where one of the people is Jewish, the other one is not. Imagine that. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't endeavor to have equal rights and equal access wherever we go, but all you have a kotzpah. That's a prize that carries with it a big danger. What was Abraham's status before Kinyan Maratamach Pela? He was an outsider. He was a separate person. And as a separate person, for instance, he could not own land. That was one of the big things. You can't be a landowner if you're an outsider. 
What does Avraham do in that famous scene with Ephron at the beginning of this week's parasha? He ends up becoming a member of the tribe. You cannot, by Hittite law, by Mesopotamian law, you cannot own land unless you're a member of the tribe. And by the way, what is what are the tribe? What are the tribesmen? The members of the city council, Amaharitz. So that is. And what does Ephron say? They say, "Take it. We're happy to give it to you." Avram insists on buying it because what's Avram really doing? He's actually becoming one of the land. This is the approach that he's now taken after all the years of the promise of the Zarachanatatitaritz, and he doesn't have one dunam. This is his approach. He buys his way into the family. And that's where the trouble starts. So what does Avram say? Now that I'm a member of the family, and now that I have one son, Yitzchak, who doesn't really interact much, he's in Beersheba out in the desert contemplating whatever, he's a recluse. I need to get somebody who's going to be active. That's the whole search for a, if you will, an Avrahama. Think about the request he makes of a slave, a girl who's willing to leave family behind, leave everything behind for a vision. And that's why the slave's test is a test of hospitality, looking for Avrahama. And therefore, she has to be an outsider. Because if Yitzchak marries a local girl, the whole mission is finished. He's now a member of the club. He's now included. He's now inside. And so that's why Avram says, do not take any of the Kani Asher Anachib Kirbo. The slave isn't interested in giving that message across. And he wants to make it about patriotism and about, about civic connection. And therefore, he changes it to Bartso. What happens with Rivkan Yitzchak? It's very simple. That if Yaakov marries one of these kind of girls, the ones who are making themselves available to us, like Esav took, I'm not interested. Which is, by the way, why does Esav, who does Esav end up marrying finally? A daughter of Ishmael, who's also on the outside. Right? In the meantime, Yehuda now is a whole different era. Yehuda comes in, and Yehuda's strategy we talked about this a number of years ago, is Dafka to become part of the land and a lord of the land. And so he takes about Ishkanani. And by the way, significantly, we never hear her name. Because she's not that important. She doesn't play that role. And Yuda maintains his position as a separate person and as distinct as the other. And so by that time, they are marrying Kanani girls. And so therefore, Shimon has among his wives Kanani girl, not necessarily anything bad, and their kid is named Shaul. And that's what they call him, Shaul Benachanit. That was his identity. So we've looked at over the course of the last uh, 35 minutes has been of the, the relevant sources in Sefer Breshit that deal with the issue of marrying Kanani girls, specifically with an eye towards understanding why Avram administered this oath to his servant that uh, not to take a Kanani girl. And I suggested that the issue was not about any inherent um, uh, blemish in the Kanani lifestyle or even the curse of Noah on them, but rather because marrying a Kanani girl would then erase whatever distinctions there are between Avram and the locals, thus, um, shall we say, diminishing, if not completely curtailing, his opportunity to continue his mission.